So it's good to have you here uh, this morning. Well, that reminds me of Ed Faubert. It doesn't remind me of Ed Faubert. There's like no way to make that transition from one uh, to the next. But Ed Faubert, have you ever heard of Ed Faubert? I had never heard of him either. Uh, Faubert is what you call a cupper. So in layman's terms, which is what it has to be for me because I don't understand it, he's a coffee taster. He's a man who's so gifted and so astute with his taste buds that New York State actually certified the accuracy of his taste buds. Isn't that fantastic? So his, his, resign, <laughs> his refined sense of taste for coffee, that even while blindfolded, he'll take one sip of coffee and tell you exactly where that coffee bean came from. Uh, not only that it's from Guatemala, but from what state within Guatemala, what altitude it was grown, and on what mountain it was grown on. He has that ability. If you're like me and you enjoy a cup of coffee, that sounds exciting, that's good. You're impressed with this man, uncanny taste buds. It would appear that his coffee wisdom is incomparable. But I have to ask you this question. Why is it that so many Americans, so many of us, are so obsessed with knowing so much about so little? I'm going to ask you that question this morning. Why do we know so much about so little? I'm not mad at Ed Faubert this morning. I'm glad that he knows how to do that. I'm not like picking on him or making fun of him. But we, as we, we do put on a pedestal those who know so much about such a small thing. And we realize when we look around, if we look around at, at what's going on around us, that uh, there's so much to be, so much to know uh, that if we just pick one small area, one minutia in our society where perhaps we could fool people into thinking we are wiser than we really are if we just kind of line in on that special thing. Maybe we can be the best at one thing rather than trying to do a bunch of other things. Uh, winning is a tremendous importance to us. It's a tremendous motivation. Uh, winning will push us forward in ways that we had never expected to. We, after all, we are told as we were kids, if we play by the rules, if we work hard, then we will succeed, we will be the best, we will overcome the long odds, and we will become the champion. Why? Because watch the Olympics right now. The best thing that you can do is see all the different stories of how that person got to the place that they are. And we put that at such a high pedestal. Our hope of winning pushes us. We hear the stories of the poor peasant girl who, because she had uh, such integrity, she becomes the princess. Or we are told uh, that an outcast and a downcast young men, and they carry themselves with valor and honor, eventually they will become the prince that will get to marry the princess. The older we get, we realize that life doesn't actually work that way. Are some of you starting to come around to that? Uh, that that's not actually the way the real word world works. Uh, the way the real world, world, real world works is it's an unfair playing field. That's your first fill-in this morning, an unfair playing field. Unlike the fantasy world, in the real world, smart people work for dumb people. Some of you are nodding with me emphatically. Uh, smart people work for dumb people. Honest people get ripped off by evil people. The kind person makes you an easy mark. If you're a kind person, it makes you gullible and you can get used and abused. Sometimes the guy who goes to the gym every day, the CrossFit or MMA, and he is, he is the best fighter in the ring, he gets sucker punched in a bar by some fat guy who decided that he was mad at him. And, and you don't know what turned around, and the next thing you know, this guy's laying on the ground. That's what happens. Sometimes the, the girl with a degree who has worked so hard to be where she's at, uh, the boss hires his girlfriend rather than her, even though she's far more qualified. Some of you have lived through that. 
So admittedly, this would lead us to a, a depression and despair. We say, well, what's the point? Why would we even do anything? And in Solomon's words, we would say, it's all meaningless. However, God is shifting our focus today from being winners to trying to be the very best at something, from being winners to being wise. The adjustment is going to be made here from being winners to being wise. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're a guest with us this morning, we've been making our way through this book this summer. Uh, we are in the ninth out of ten weeks in this series, and we've just kind of been trucking along and making our way through the book. It's a, a very powerful book. Uh, the author is most likely Solomon, the king of Israel, and he's broken down into three sections, and now we've made our way into the third section, where Solomon starts giving advice on various issues. Uh, it's a very similar feeling to the book of Proverbs uh, that just deals with one thing after another, it appears. And it, when you look at the world and it's out of control, he's giving us some wise counsel, some wise advice, some wisdom as we deal with this life. As you've made your way through the book of Ecclesiastes, if it's your first time going through it with us as we've been in this series, you'll see that the whole time Solomon is dealing with everything that happens under the sun. We see that term used often in this book. It is happening under the sun, which is also implying that there are things that happen above the sun. But what is happening under the sun is the only thing that he is going to deal with in this book. He's going to allow us to use our five senses and our five senses only to try to make sense of things. He's not cynical. He's not skeptical. He's just realistically looking at the world in this manner and he's drawing logical conclusions if you only use those senses at what you come to. That said, I believe as you go through this book, you will also see that our logical conclusions will only take us so far. Their intellect will always bring us up to the need for the one who is above the sun. It brings us to the need for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what Solomon is bringing us to. So why do we know so much about so little? It is that unfair playing field. Let's start with uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. If you're using your pew Bibles, it's somewhere near page 700. I know that it's ballpark in that area. Uh, we're, we're preaching out of the NIV here this morning. Uh, chapter 9, verse 11. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does the food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. I think it's appropriate now as the Olympics are starting, and some of you may be obsessed with it, some of you don't care at all, and that's fine, but as we, we look at that, you have this whole idea of may the best man or the best woman or the best competitor win the games, and that's really what's going on there. Uh, we saw in the news last week that Russia was only going to have 271 out of uh, 389 athletes were going to be in, com in competition. That means that more than a third have been asked not to compete. They were not going to be allowed to compete because it was not an even playing field, because they were uh, caught doping and, and really trying to ruin the sport for everyone. And so there's this idea that the best man will win, that you will be able to put things up against each other, and at the end of the day, you will know who stands tallest. But Solomon observes the fact about life that it's not always the fastest runner who wins the race. Sometimes he gets a bronze medal and sometimes the slow runner gets a gold medal. 
Yesterday afternoon, we watched uh, some of the uh, cycling races. And, and when we watched that, I don't know if you, some of you saw it, there was a wreck right near the end of it. And the person who had, uh, he was in third or fourth place for most of the race. Someone else had done all the work, but there was a wreck right near the end, and he just kind of made it through that wreck. And he's the one who has a gold medal. And the two guys who had been in the front for more than six hours, way out in front, uh, come away with no medal whatsoever. And that doesn't mean that there was anything illegal done. It doesn't mean that the competition was wrong. It just means that sometimes the fastest guy does not come in first. He gives us a different example of this beginning in verse 14. He says, There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came up against it, surrounded it, and built a huge siege works against it. Verse 15, Now there lived in that city a man who was poor but wise. He saved the city by his wisdom, but yet... No one remembered that poor man. So in this parable, the poor, wise, outsmarts the enemy king. Uh, Something about this man within the village, what he did saves the village. Uh, And yet he is rewarded not with wealth or social esteem. He is in the same position after the fact as before. Uh, Whether the poor man delivered the city by diplomacy or something he did militarily is not really demonstrated here. We don't know what happened, but at the end of the day, uh, we we give credit to him uh, from the author. Solomon is giving credit to him as the parable is put together. But the people who lived in the town don't give him any credit whatsoever. They pay no attention to what he has done. They don't believe that he had anything to do with it, or if they did, they just don't care. So what's the moral of this story? What's the moral of this parable? Fools never listen. Fools never learn. Even if wisdom is available to them, they do not avail themselves to it. Uh, he, He did the wise thing. He saved them, but yet this whole group of people look at it and they just foolishly move on. They don't pay any attention to what he's done. Fools never listen. Fools never learn. So when we ask that question, why do we know so much about so very little, we're going to look today at the fool and his folly. If you're doing our fill-ins with us this morning, that's your next fill-in. The fool and his folly, starting in chapter 10. So he's telling us, Solomon's telling us that wisdom is available to us, but some of us neglect it. Most of us don't need more information. We don't need more uh, things to fill up our lives, more insight, more data, more trivia facts. Uh, Some of you can spout those things off tremendously. Do you really need more of that? What we really need to do is actually live out the thing that you know how to do. Uh, The Apostle Paul talks about this in the New Testament. He says, the very thing that I know to do, I don't do. And the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, I'm not doing. And he's caught in the tension there. He says, why can't I just step out and do what I'm supposed to do? James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's what this author is talking about. Here's the story of this wise man. He could have saved the day, but nobody's listening. Nobody's paying attention. The amount of minutiae, the trivia, the facts, the information about our day is overwhelming. It's staggering. But what we're lacking is wisdom. What we're lacking is wisdom. We don't need more information. We don't need more data. Uh, You're not going to get to the end of the internet. You're not going to make it. We don't need more. We need to be able to be wise with what we have. So that moral of the story, fools never listen. Fools never learn. But if you and I are wise this morning, you and I can learn from the fool. So the fool and his folly, let's talk about it this morning. There's four follies of a fool. The first one, the folly of an unchecked temptation. Of an unchecked 
temptation. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10, it says, As the dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so does a little folly outweigh wisdom and honor. When Solomon says that one dead fly can ruin the perfume, uh, his analogy is that the wisdom creates, an unpleasant, wisdom creates a pleasant environment, but that a little folly will stink up the whole issue. Uh, if you've got a dead animal in your house, uh, your house is going to stink. It doesn't matter how much you pretty it up. It doesn't matter what you do. There's still that smell. There's something there. This dead fly in the ointment, this, this fly is going to ruin the scent of that great smelling perfume. And you don't care, ladies, whether it's a little fly or a big fly. You do not want that fly in your perfume. Verse 2, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. Now let's be clear here. This is not a political statement by any means. God is not a Republican or a Democrat when he says that the fool walks to the left. That's not what we're dealing with here. Uh, We would call God a benevolent dictator. He could care less about uh, politics, but in campaign season, I figured I should say something there. The root here is unchecked, unchecked temptation and indulgence. Just like that fly is attracted, like the fly in the ointment or the fly in the perfume, the fly is drawn in regardless of what the dangers might be. He is drawn in. Uh, in a similar way, it might be a kid at the carnival. You, you take your kid to the carnival and they want to run after everything that shines. They want the, the cotton candy and they want to ride this ride and they want to throw the ring toss and they, want, and they just want to go everywhere doing everything or the draw of Americans to the fast food chains. I'm hungry, I'm hungry right now. I want to eat right now. I know that it's not healthy for me. I know that there are better things that I could do. I know I could make dinner, but right now I want to eat. And so we're drawn to that. Uh, the allure of something like the Las Vegas Strip is it draws people in because they want something and it just pulls one way or another. And basically what Solomon is doing here, what the author is doing, he says, if you walk behind a fool down the street, maybe not in a literal street, but through his life, you just watch him just chase one thing after another, after another, whatever's shining, whatever temptation pulls him in at the moment, you can see the life of a fool just getting swung back and forth, moved around, drawn in every direction. The fool struggles with more than just that, more than just temptation pulling him one thing to the next. The second thing is the folly of an uncontrolled temper. The folly of an uncontrolled temper. Verse 4, if a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Verse 6, fools are put in high positions while the rich occupy the low ones. I have seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. This is an extremely practical verse. The author is saying here, when your boss gets angry at you, let it go. Let it go, let it go. Some of you have kids in your house and you had to go there with me. Don't let another person's actions drive your reactions. Sometimes it's a good idea to quit your job, walk away, and get out of Dodge, but wisdom recommends that you don't jump to that conclusion the first time that the hair on your neck stands up a little bit. Just hang in there, deal with the person, keep your cool, and maintain your composure. In life, this is saying here as well, wise people are not always the ones that are honored. 
You can turn on your television and you're going to see stuff and deal with stuff that are not people of honor, but they're going to be the one that are put on the pedestal. Uh, You're going to see the Kardashians. You're going to see what's going on with Miley Cyrus and Paris Hilton. And right now during the elections, you're going to see the foolishness that Trump and Hillary are throwing back and forth at one another. And that's what's put at a pedestal. And right here, Solomon is saying, don't get caught up in that. Sometimes the fools are the ones who are put at the highest point. That doesn't mean that you have to be right there with them. His point is this, if you're looking for wisdom, don't look to the pretty people, don't look to the rich people, don't look to the famous people, the powerful people. Some of them are just fools with a big bank account. Some of them are fools with nice cars, fools with great attorneys, fools with great spin doctors running their social media accounts. That's what's really going on. That's what Solomon is pointing us to. He said, you could keep your cool and maintain your composure said, if not, though, your hot temper, if you react in a negative way, it could make you, it could land you walking to work when you should be riding in style. That's what it's saying here. When you, you should be the one that's on the horse, but instead you're the one who's walking like a slave because you couldn't keep your cool. A fool has an uncontrolled temper. But fools deal more with that than just temptation and tempting. There's the folly, thirdly, of an unplanned toil, the folly of an unplanned toil. Verse 8, whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. Verse 10, if the axe is dull and its edge is unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. So in this segment, we see five illustrations that are making the point. Think before you act. Have a plan, the author is saying. He's saying you can go out, you can dig a massive pit, but stay away from the edge or you might fall in that pit yourself. Why would you be digging a pit like that? Militarily, you'd be doing something like that so that the enemy might fall in there. Stay away from the edge or you might fall in and break your own neck. If you are clearing stones away from an old wall, this is very practical. I know that you guys do this all the time, that you're out building your stone walls around your property and you're pulling them away. And he's saying, be careful because there may be a venomous snake there when you pull up that rock. I know it's not something we deal with in our culture, but that's what he's saying. He's dealing with that right then and there. There could be a copperhead on the other side of that wall. If you're an excavator, if you're dealing with rocks and you're cutting out a piece of rock, be aware because it has to fall somewhere. When you blow the dynamite, it has to explode. Something is going to move. Uh, Be aware of where it's going to fall. Don't let it fall on your head. Don't let it hit you on the head. It says uh, if you're cutting down trees, the same advice is true. If you cut down a tree, be aware the tree has to fall somewhere and it could fall on you. Many of you are, you know, your backyard warriors and you're dealing with stuff like that and you're cutting down trees and different things like that and that's great, that's fine. There's a reason why professionals do those things is because people get hurt every single day thinking that they got it all figured out. And you see some of those trees come down, if you've ever seen it, it just shakes the whole earth. And that could be you, squashed like a bug because you are a fool. Okay. If you don't have enough forethought, to sharpen your axe before the day's work, you're going to make the day's work that much more difficult. Stop, sharpen the edge, 
if it's dull, yes, you can get the job done, but it's going to take a lot more sweat. It's going to take a lot more of swinging that axe. And when you do that, how many people get cut by a sharp knife? Not many. Most people get cut by a dull knife because when you have a dull knife, you are working that much harder. The same thing applies to a chainsaw or an axe or anything like that. You can get hurt because you haven't taken the forethought to do something ahead of yourself. So to bring it to our modern day generation, if you are a fool that watches HGTV and you decide that you're going to renovate your entire house, but the only tool you need is a sledgehammer, then you've probably gotten a little bit farther ahead than you need to. Take some time to plan it out a little bit farther ahead. The folly of an unplanned toil. Let's continue on. Verse 11. Uh, if a snake... If a snake bites before its charm, the charmer receives no fee. Words of the mouth of the wise are gracious, but the fools are consumed by their own lips. This is the folly of the tongue. The first verse looks like a random thought, but actually the key to the entire section, when you look at the snake charmer, when you're, if you've ever seen it on a YouTube video or whatever, it's amazing what they can do. They can play this little song and the snake actually will calm down and, and relax and pay attention. But really, if you've ever seen it, it's quite a talent to do that. But at the end of the day, who cares if he, was, if he was charmed for just a minute or two and then he bites you? You still got bit. You're a fool. So what he's saying, pay attention. You should be uh, careful with what you're doing. The charmer has the skill to do it correctly, but he isn't doing it. When it comes to using our lips and using our tongue, we need to bridle our tongue is what we see in the New Testament because the words of the mouth are wise and gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. We know that we should talk less and listen more. We probably tell people that as we're talking a lot. The irony that I'm standing up here talking and you are listening and I'm telling you you should listen more. It's a little bit confusing. Some benefits to talking less and listening more, and we continue to rattle on. Here's a few benefits, just a side note of taking, talking less. When you talk less, you can listen actually to what people are saying. When you talk less, you can listen to what people are saying. When you talk less, you have time to frame your thoughts instead of just spouting off the first things that comes to your mind. When you talk less, your friends will value your words more because you took the time to listen to them. If you are expecting that they want to hear what you have to say, then you also have to take the time to listen to what they have to say. That's what communication and conversation is all about, the give and take back and forth. And if you listen more, talk less, you run the lower risk of saying something ridiculous, of saying something foolish. Just keep your mouth shut. What's that old saying about uh, the wise man knows? Uh, people think you are foolish. Don't open up your mouth and confirm it. Because when you do that, when we, when we talk and talk constantly, we make ourselves look like a fool. The author gives us another example of this. Verse 20. Do not revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you have to say. Now, 
in a very literal way. Birds do not carry words. I guess there are a few like that could repeat what you're saying. But what he is doing here is he's saying the word just gets out there. A little birdie told me is what the old statement says. The word will get out. And in our modern day culture, the little birdie told me, it, it basically is implying Twitter, I think. Uh, basically, like the, the word is getting out there. But why is that such an obsession with us? Social media is something like that where you think you're saying something in private and you're foolish enough to think that it's not going out there. Some people, maybe some of you, will say the foolish things on Facebook or social media and, and, and whatever comes to your mind, you say it and it is out there and you're hiding behind your computer screen and the reality is you would never say that to someone's face but you'll fire it away on an email or fire it away on Twitter or fire it away on social media. And what does the Bible say about that? It says that is foolish behavior. People are going to be frustrated. We get that. They want to rant about those in authority. That's what he's talking about here, the authority of the king. You, you want to throw a fit about it. I get that. This can be kids with their parents. It can be a wife with her husband. It can be an employee with their boss, a citizen, their president, a church, a Christian with their pastor. And they're all going to say something that they're frustrated about. But eventually the word gets out. The word gets out that you are someone who criticizes. You are someone who talks behind people's back. You've been ranted against, and it hurts both us and them. There are no winners uh, when you and I do that. Solomon's reminding us of this illustration that a wise person knows that they don't say something in private that they would not say publicly to the entire world. Do you realize that? There are things that you say in private you should never say because if you were broadcast to the entire world what you just said, you might regret it. And if politics teaches us anything, as you're looking around right now, there are people listening all the time and someone's digging up dirt from 30 years ago, but it's broadcast to the whole world. Don't be a fool. So what are the four follies of a fool? The folly of an unchecked temptation, the folly of an uncontrolled temper, the folly of an unplanned toil, and the folly of an unbridled tongue. Why do we know so much about so little? Any fool will tell you, and they're quick to tell you, absolutely everything that they think that he knows. When we ask the second question, why do we know so little about so much? The wise man knows that he doesn't know it all. That's the difference between a wise man and a fool. The wise man knows he doesn't know it all. They are wise beyond words. That's your next fill-in beginning in chapter 11. They are wise beyond words. If you're here in western New York, one of your favorite things, if you're like me, is to eat a sheet pizza. That's something kind of unique to our area. You get this big sheet pizza and there's like 50 slices in it. If you think about it in your life, the way that that works, if you want to do a pie graph or whatever you want to do, but the big, the big one and your little square, your little piece of the pizza is what you know. That one square, that's what you know. And then if you want to take a second square, that's what you know that you don't know. I know that I don't know how to fly a spaceship. I'm pretty certain that I don't know how to do that. That's in that pocket. But the rest of it is the stuff that you don't know that you don't know. So 1%, I don't know if the percentage is right. Where's Aaron? 1%. 1% of what I know, 1% of what I know that I don't know, and then 98% of what I don't know that I don't know. Are you following me so far? 
98%, we have no idea what we're talking about, no idea what we are missing. But you know what the wise beyond words do? They start to actually move out into that area of what they don't know that they don't know. Why? Because if there's no risk, there's no reward. There's no risk, there's no reward. Think about Scripture. When I talk about wise men, that, that maybe your mind goes there, that's where mine went, is the three wise men that we talk about, the Magi and the Christmas story. Think about the things that they knew and the things that they didn't know. They traveled 800 to 900 miles to go see the Christ child. Most likely, they did have some of the writings of Daniel to work off of, and they figured, well, if what Daniel has written, we can chart the stars, and there's pieces and parts of this thing that actually make sense, but you don't necessarily go 800 miles on a few pieces like that. They didn't have it all charted out. There was no blueprint. And even the documents that they were looking at were 400 to 500 years old. Because God had not spoken to his people for the whole gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, more than 400 years. And so they're looking at this document and they're getting on a journey and they're going 800 miles and they only know a very small amount of what's going to happen. They, they can chart the stars and they're pretty sure, but they're still taking steps out there the wise beyond words are not afraid of the unknown. The wise beyond words are not afraid of the unknown. Let me give you two examples that are given here in Scripture. Beginning in chapter 11, verse 1, the wisdom of a diverse investment. The wisdom of a diverse investment. Verse 1, ship your grain across the sea. After many days you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Now, you may find it a little bit different out of the ordinary to see Solomon offering financial counsel as he's getting near the end of this book of Ecclesiastes, of his writings here. Yet, this book is a down and dirty, nitty-gritty, facts-of-life book, so we shouldn't be too surprised to see him dealing with finances. It was a big deal to what he was doing with in his kingdom and all that was happening in his kingdom, and it's a big deal to us today. Solomon was deeply involved in international trade with countless merchants. One of the main commodities was grain. The grain went back and forth, and that, and that food was something that they were able to barter with regularly. The merchants of Solomon's day would load their grain ships and send them off. In the NIV, that first verse we saw, ship your grain across the sea. If you're looking at another translation this morning, another version, your words might say, cast your bread on the water or on the waters. Waters here is plural, or the seas. In other words, don't put all your grain in one ship. Don't put it all there and send it that way. Put your wheat in several ships. Send it out in a diversified way. Put it in different areas so that if one of the ships would sink, you will not be entirely ruined. In other words, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Diversify your portfolio. Spread it out more evenly. The wise, beyond words, make a diverse investment because they realize that they don't know everything and what is natural for them is to go to what they do know so if Solomon knows the the king or excuse me the the captain of the one ship he knows the destination that is going to he knows everything about the shipping routes for that one ship he could put all of his grain in that ship because that's what he knows that's the one percent that's the one piece of pizza but at the end of the day he's expanding saying there's some other things that are out there and if I avoid them and something happens to this one ship I'm done I'm through the wise beyond words had the wisdom of a diverse investment. Verse 3, the wisdom of a dynamic adventure. The wisdom of a dynamic 
adventure. There's a number of verses here, beginning in verse 3. If the clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. You see him starting to go above the sun here. Sow your seed in the morning, and at the evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or they will both do equally well. This small proverb that that he has written here is, is basically criticizing those who are overly cautious. He is criticizing the farmer here who waits for the most opportune moment to plant, when there's no wind to blow away the seed, when there's, uh, the clouds are, got, are there, so there's no rain to ruin the harvest, where there's nothing ever going to hurt the seed that he's going to throw out there. He looks at all of those conditions. You know what he does? He leaves all the seed and all the farm machinery in the barn because that's the safest place, and there's no risk there whatsoever. He exhorts us not to be like this farmer. He says, don't wait for the conditions to be perfect because that may never happen. You're going to keep charting the stars and keep looking and making sure that things are right and you might never go. Last weekend, the family, we got away for just a couple of nights. We do this every year. We get uh, Sunday after church, we take off and go uh, two nights usually camping. We go to the campground, we set up Sunday night, uh, we do a little hike on Monday, stay over Monday night, and then get out of Dodge Tuesday morning. We've done this two or three years now. When we were on our way Sunday, it looked like we were going to get hit with just shy of a tornado. Like, it looked rough. I was like, boy, let's go set up our tent in the middle of a hurricane. This will be awesome. But the car was loaded. We were ready to go. In fact, we were on the road at that point. So we could turn around. We could go back home where we were safe. You know what happened? We got there. We got set up. We drove the stakes in the ground. We tied everything off. We set everything up just in case this thing happened, and it rained 10 drops. We would have missed the whole thing. Missed the opportunity because you look around and you, you try to be so cautious and try to be so aware of everything, we would have missed the entire opportunity. It's true. It could have rained on us. The wind could have come. It could have blown us around. It could have messed us up pretty bad that night. You could work on this project at work and it could be ruined tomorrow. You might have to do it over again. The crops might be destroyed, but at least you went out and you planted. At least you knew. Uh, I'm a fairly athletic guy. I'm not a good softball player. I played on a church softball team a number of years ago. And I found out after the fact that this was a pretty competitive team. And so the first season, I was new at the church and I was on staff. And so they put me on like the varsity church team. And then the next year, I was on like the JV church team. (laughs) The reason why was we had a very competitive game between the, uh, I assume that the reason is why. The end of the game, the big game, the two church, these are two teams within the church, but they're playing each other for the championship of the league. And I was up to bat. And for some reason, when that ball comes in, I can hit a baseball, but something, by the way, that softball slow pitch, the way that drops down, it just messes me up, and I cannot figure out how to hit it. And so often, I could get a little, I'm pretty quick, and so I could get to the first base if I had a little terrible hit. It, it wouldn't matter. I could usually get to the first base. You know what I did that day? Two, two outs, I'm on the bat, and I stood and watched three pitches go by. Just stood there, 
game's over, everybody go home. I hang my head in shame and drag the bat off to the side and go home. I didn't even try, I didn't even swing, just watched him go by. Some of you are doing that with your life. You're just watching it all go by because it was safe, it was cautious, at least I wasn't gonna make a fool of myself and pop it up and lose the game for everyone, or so I thought. Just watched him go by. One, two, three, you're out of here. The only sure thing in life is that there is no sure thing. If you're a person who is waiting for the perfect mate, you're gonna remain single. If you're a person who's waiting for the perfect job, you're gonna remain unemployed. If you're a person who's waiting for the perfect timing to do something, you will never act. You're just like a kid who's at the edge of the diving board, he's ready to jump into the pool or the side of the pool, he's ready to go, he's ready to go. He just, he hasn't taken off, he ha- he's not sure, he's ready to see what happens. See, I feel that a Christ follower should actually be the most adventurous person in a room. We should be willing to step out in ways that other people are not. Why? Because you are literally in that scenario, you are jumping into your daddy's arms. You're not alone. You're not jumping into the abyss completely with with no room for error. You're jumping in and, and, and your daddy says, I got you. Turn over to the New Testament. We want to talk about the good, good father. We're moving over to Ephesians chapter 1. I just want to share this one verse with you. I think it connects the dots very well for us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. You are jumping into the arms of the good, good father. Paul is writing here, and he says this, verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. This is Paul's prayer for his people. He is praying that believers might come to a genuine understanding of who their father is, that divine truth through the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that because of the Holy Spirit that they would be wise. He's he's not even guessing that we would ever be able to figure this out on our own. At the end of the day, we will always come up short. We will always be the fool outside of the Holy Spirit. He says, pray that the Father would give you the Holy Spirit, that their understanding would, would comprehend that God has called you to this, that you are here for a reason, that you have a purpose on this earth, and that's why God has ordained what is happening right now. He's saying the good, good Father, you read through the rest of that passage, he talks about the, the, the power that comes through the Father, through his Son, Jesus, and through the Holy Spirit, the power that is there and is available to you and to me, and we can pray to understand the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and this calling in our lives. God is in control, and your only hope and my only hope for wise living on planet Earth is through His Son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Don't be a fool. Don't get caught in the trap that you're going to intellectually think yourself through this life. You're not. It's going to come up empty every time. Solomon is demonstrating this over and over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. And you look at it and you go, Solomon, we already talked about that. Why why are we saying this again? Why are you going through this again? I believe the scripture is God-breathed, and so if he's going to say it again, there's a reason why. It's because he's trying to get the point across that this, you're going to keep hitting your head against the wall if you continue down this road. That's why he's repeating himself. He's showing and demonstrating that. As long as you are trying to figure this out under the sun with those five senses, you will come up short every single 
time. There's no better time than the present to step out, to jump. That's what the wise do. They go out into the unknown. Maybe that's what you've done. You've taken steps. You step out into the unknown, doing so with wise risk and wise reward. But you're doing that because you're following the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are listening to this message this morning. You're going, man, that's good. I'm going to step out next year on something. That sounds really good. Man, I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start that new job after the kids graduate. There's no time better than the present to step out in faith. There just isn't. To jump into the good, good father's arms. To jump into daddy's arms and say, I, I, I'm going. You're going to have to catch me here, but I'm going to step out. The wise adventurer goes to the good, good father. And so when we open that conversation, we look and see what did the father do for you and for me, it takes us back to John 3.16, a verse that most of us know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what the good, good father has done for you and for me. He hasn't done that without any cost of his own. He's given everything. He gave it all for you and for me so that we could be part of his family and we can stop this foolishness. Solomon listed four or five ways this morning that, that a fool just kind of behaves. We could make the list a lot longer probably. But do we really know what it means to live a, a wise life? I think it's fitting this morning. We are going to have a time of communion and if the communion attendees, if you'll make your ways down this morning. This demonstrates for us really what, what Christ did on the cross. He is the good, good Father. He is the one who is going to make all things new. He is the only way. And if we are wise, we should see that, that this is not something that we're going to do. In our, we're not going to get through this life outside of Jesus Christ. He gave his only son for you and for me.